$10 at the door. The event is wheelchair accessible. This is a benefit for Project Censored and KPFA. For more information about the untold history of the United States with Oliver Stone, see projectcensored.org. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Loretta Greco, who is the artistic director of Magic Theater in San Francisco in Fort Mason. Loretta Greco has been artistic director since 2008. She's also the director of a play, Sayama Christina, by Octavio Solis, which is playing through February 24th at the Magic. Loretta Greco, let's talk about the origins of the play and how it developed and what kind of work you had to do. How did it start? Well, I think it's an interesting story. You know, talk about gestation and birthing, which if you've seen the play is is hugely essential in terms of its thematic value. Octavio started this play a good 17 years ago, thinking about the arrival of his baby girl. And he wasn't sure what the heck it was. And his wife kept reading it and he kept reading it and pages kept coming, but he couldn't quite figure it out. So he shelved it. Fast forward 15 years, the Denver Center commissions Octavio to write a new play, and he says, hmm, maybe I'll pick up that baby girl play I started to write before the birth of Gracie. He writes what was then called Baby Girl, and at another time had a, a Christina Marie title, and he workshops it at Denver, and they option it for a year, they extend the option for the, for another year, and then ultimately they pass on this play. So Octavio thinks the play is dead, and he goes on, he's writing a new musical for South Coast, and I am season planning for uh, this present season, this is last winter, and I I lost a project, and I'm frantically looking for something great. And my friend Shirley Fishman at La Jolla Playhouse said, why aren't you doing that terrific baby girl play of Octavio's? And we had a commission with Octavio. I was working with him. I didn't know anything about this project. She sent it to me. I read it. My artistic staff read it. We unanimously loved this thing. I call Octavio and he said, how did you get a hold of it? He said, I thought it was dead. And we met and talked about it and what he said was so beautiful and what I believe to be true. He said, this was a magic play all along. So that's how I found out about it. Then we worked together for about six months at various places here at The Magic with our dramaturg, Dory Jacob, and then at the Black Swan Lab with Louis Douthat and the wonderful company at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and then Hartford Stage. We worked with a wonderful company out there, and then he went to Boston Court with another team and worked on it there. And so, you know, it takes a village, and this is the first stop and the first sort of viewing from here it will be produced in dallas at kitchen dog and then it'll go to la at the boston court so already we have two other productions with it resonating out for magic theaters premiere what kind of relationship did that first script have to what is now playing at the Magic? Well, I think the the heart of it is absolutely still there. One of the things, it, to be utterly candid about it, was that I felt like the development was heading towards 
something that was a little bit more prescriptive and I won't say pandering, but I felt like it wasn't muscular enough for our audience in that I felt like Octavia was sort of putting turn signals on about four miles before he made the turn. And I felt like the heart of his writing is a kind of muscularity. And what we were trying to find was to say, you know what? It's not being produced at the Denver Center at a big regional theater. It's being produced at the magic for an audience that has an appetite for something that stays well ahead of them. And so part of what we were doing was really chiseling and bringing back the theatricality and trying to make as muscular a journey as the play catapults forward and backward in time as we could. Muscular. What do you mean by muscular? I always look at something, you know, I've been doing this a long time, but finally my taste and, and how I define something that's great is the experience of myself in the audience. So muscular to me is something that stays ahead of me, that has me leaning forward, that has me maybe, you know, clutching my hands and realizing that there's some suspense. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it's not so far ahead of me that I feel like, I'm worried about what I should have read before I came to prepare, that I'm thinking I'm not smart enough to understand the proceedings, or I'm feeling like it's so oblique that I will never be able to permeate it. So I think it's about finding a balance. But for me, it's about taught, exciting language that then actors can wrap their mighty, you know, chops around and really be able to flex their muscles as well in our great communal space. You know, the thing about Octavio is it's got to be visceral, and he's such a visceral writer. And he's a writer where I think that most people who know his canon think first about the language. It is very um, poetic, so it's got highs and lows. It's also very street, very urban. So there's something fantastic about the muscle of that going from high to low in a split second that's also exciting both for the actors and the creative team and for the audience experiencing it. I would think on some level all successful plays do that, right? I mean, all successful plays will kind of give you that or am I wrong? I think we all talk a lot about language. I think that the the writers that I'm drawn to are using language in a kind of unique way. I do think that there is a trend right now of slightly smaller than life plays plays that are really, really um, looking at a very particular slice of life. And I'm not sure that language in the way that Octavio is using it in a kind of soaring uh, manner, in a poetic manner, in a, a manner that also uses Spanish and English and, and goes from lots of F-bombs to something that's actually almost, uh, you know, a, a piece of poetic reverie that feels like a an aria of sorts. So I think he is doing something rather unique. Well, in thinking about it and thinking about the shows that, that The Magic puts on, it seems that the heightened verbiage of the shows also reflects the fact that they tend to move in a direction of fantasy, even if they're not fantastic. They jump across space and time, and that seems fairly unique to the magic. 
Well, you know, I think that it's something that excites me because I think, you know, it's funny looking at Sam and Christina because, you know, we came off opening the season with the other place, which also catapults through time and memory plays an essential role in. You know, for me in this space and with the aesthetic that started all the way back with McClure and Shepard here is that language was essential also because it's a postage stamp of a playing space. And that's not to say that we aren't interested visually in doing something very exciting and theatrical scenically. But what is required every time you come is to use your imagination. And there's nothing like an extraordinary muscular journey through time and language to get everybody's imaginative juices flowing. So I think it is, it's a, it's a heightened kind of storytelling that we're trying to do. When I talked to Jason Minadakis of Marin Theatre Company, he kept talking about kind of a dialogue between plays in any given season. Do you look at a season the same way? I do. One of the things that I learned early on, and I'm going to sound really anti-big regional theater, and I'm not, but one of the things, I came up in a very big regional theater right out of grad school, and one of the things that I found kind of deadly was that kind of, okay, where is the American chestnut? Where is the European classic? Where is the African-American play? Where is the... and what I thought was more interesting and what that regional theater also began to evolve to because it had a pretty visionary leader was what is the conversation we want to be having with our audience and how do these plays speak to one another and complement one another tonally, thematically. The commonality will always be that their substance is that the content for me is incredibly important and that it can be dressed up in a, a bunch of different ways in terms of the, the structure. But, you know, this season as plays about family. They couldn't be more distinct, but I think that there is something interesting because all of a sudden there were a lot of writers writing about family experiences. And I thought, okay, what is that about this moment in time for these very different writers? And what is it for us to look from the other place to another way home to say, I'm a Christina, to the happy ones, to Terminus, and to look at these family stories from the traditional to the very skewed, all of them poetic and muscular and funny in their own right. So yeah, we do think about that. And I think our audience does as well. And I think it in is the dialogue we have with them as we engage throughout a season. Loretta Greco, the two plays that have already been produced this season, The Other Place by Shara White and Another Way Home by Anna Ziegler, The Other Place is a bit different from what you usually do because, uh, and I noticed it when I was watching it, it was not, you know, in the process of being workshopped from company to company, but this was a finished play, and it was obvious it was a finished play. Why did you decide to make that leap for that play? Well, it had had one domestic production at a great company, Manhattan Class Company, MCC, that Bob Lapone and, and Bernie Telsey run. They had a fantastic run, but they didn't extend and it didn't get picked up. And then Shar had a um, international company in Germany pick up the other place. And I think it ran for eight months in rep with Arthur Miller and Tony Kushner. And no one else was going to do this stunning play. And we were in the process of working on something from scratch, working on the world premiere together of Annapurna last 
not this past fall, but the fall before. And when Char told me that, it broke my heart because I loved the other place. And I was determined that if he would be a part of it, whether he rewrote four sentences, four words, or four syllables, that if he were to commune with our audience again, that we would help get that play out into the, you know, the national scene. Because if that play can't get more than one domestic production, I don't think there's hope for the, for new American plays at all. So it was that we were committed to Char. We were committed to a body of work. The audience was utterly engaged with Annapurna. What happened was three months before we went into rehearsal, Manhattan Theater Club said, we love it and we're going to do the Broadway production of the other place. So actually, your assumption is almost true. We <laughs> came in with something that was nearly done, but then Char was able to tweak thinking about this next New York production. So it was actually really invaluable to him and things did alter and it was a very different production from the off-Broadway premiere. So, you know, in this case, I felt like the West Coast premiere was really useful and now he's got reviews also that talk about the play. The off-Broadway production starred the brilliant Laurie Metcalf who's and, starring on Broadway now, right. but it talked primarily about Laurie. Now he has, you know, a real series of reviews at a small theater where this was incredibly successful at the Magic and the Broadway reviews. So now I'm hoping he's going to have 50 productions of the other place next season. Now that's on Broadway with Laurie Metcalf and Bill Pullman. Amazing actors. And Laurie Metcalf's daughter is playing the other female role. So I'm very excited to be able to see it soon. Loretta Greco. You use a great group of Bay Area actors. You use the same people frequently like Rod Knapp. I really believe in community, and I think that every time you work with a writer, every time you work with a director, every time you work with an actor, again, the vocabulary is deeper. The ability to take bigger risks earlier is ample. The playmaking and the tenor of the room, you know, having Rod in the room, I think this is the fifth show we've done together. You know, there's an incredible community of talent here. So um, what I'm trying to do is build a community of writers so that the actors as well have this shorthand. And in this case, Rod Rod had worked with Octavio, you know, two decades before I had Sean as well. This was Sean's 10th production with Octavio. So the shorthand that goes with that is extraordinary. And I think that, you know, as an audience member, what you know is you're going to see the best of the Bay Area, whether that be Jim Carpenter, whether that be Patrick Alperone, whether that be Rod Knapp. You know, it's thrilling for us to be able to welcome people home. And, you know, with Rod and Sean, It's also lovely because we don't audition them. I call them and I say, how would you feel about doing X? And and I think that's something that they've earned. You're listening to an interview with Loretta Greco, the artistic director of Magic Theater and also the director of Sayama Christina at the Magic. Loretta Greco, let's talk a little bit about the two upcoming productions 
You say these are all family plays. What is the happy ones and where did it come from and how far along in the development is it? Well, the happy ones is a really unique project. We at Magic work on premieres, second and third productions with the playwright at our side. And that last part is really important because if a playwright's not game to work on it and doesn't have work to be done on the play, we don't do it. If Shar had said to me, oh, Mazel Tov on, on the other place, we wouldn't have done the production. Really? He was here. Oh, he was here. You know, he was here for most of the time. And he was with me casting. And so we don't shop for new plays. We work on new plays with the playwrights. So The Happy Ones is interesting because I'm having dinner with Luis Alfaro. We're dining with a playwright that I love but hadn't seen in a decade, Julie Marie Myatt. And Julie had been here during Chris's tenure. And I said, what are you writing? We had worked together at at, uh, New Dramatist in New York. She had something new, but what caught her ear was that I said we do second and third productions as well. So the next morning in my inbox, there was Julie's new play, but there was another play, and she said, The Happy Ones has had two productions. I think it's one of my best plays. I love it. I think there's still work to be done, and I would love nothing more than to do that work at the Magic. So we read the new play, which we liked a lot, but we loved the happy ones. And Julie's dad lives here. She has a real Bay Area connection. You know, one of the pieces of the litmus test is that we don't ask people who I don't think we we will want back. We don't like one-offs. We really want to be able to have a writer develop a canon here. So Julie felt like she fit all that criteria. And the happy ones, what's really cool, it's unique because it's a third production, but it's also unique because it's um, it really is a, a, a story about grief, but it's from a male perspective. And I found that really, really distinct. Uh, it's about a guy who has it all and loses everything in a second. And it's about how he deals with it. And it's funny as hell. I think that everyone will recognize everyone within the piece. It's a bit of a period piece. It's the late 70s. It's set in Orange County. And I'm, you know, I'm really delighted to be able to work with Julie again. And the other thing that's special about this is Jonathan Moscone is directing it. And I'm thrilled because he is extraordinary with this material. I think he's uh, depth in terms of the way he deals with tone. I was blown away by his Clybourne Park at ACT, and uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting, exciting experience for our audiences. The final play of the season is Terminus. How did you come to that one, and where is that one in development? Well, it's an odd duck to classify. I fell in love with it about two weeks after I got this job and months before I moved here. It was at Under the Radar Festival in New York, Mark Russell's incredible festival of international work in New York. And it was the Abbey Theater production of Marco Rose's new play Terminus. Oh, talk about language. He's my favorite Irish writer. I mean, I'll just say it. No exceptions. He's my favorite Irish writer. I don't know if you're around for Howie the Rookie, but when I ask people at the Magic, what what are your favorite productions? You know, of course, there's a bevy of of Shepard plays that Howie the Rookie is just as often in the mix. Mark's 
language is like Shakespeare meets Jacobean tragedy meets hip hop meets Dr. Seuss meets, I don't know. It's the most incredible conflation of pop and classic. I have tried to get it every year since. And the Abbey was insistent that they tour the Abbey Company's production. So they have done a couple days here, a couple days there, a week. So what we're doing is the first American production with American actors and an American director. We're thrilled to have John Tracy, also part of the bevy of Bay Area talent, coming back to direct this production. And Mark is going to be here. We're very excited about that, and we hope that that will mean that his next new play will have a home here at Magic, but we're really excited to have him back. Is that play kind of written in stone, or again, are you going to be working to revise it? No, I think that what's going to be interesting with Mark is it's done, but what isn't done is the relationship between it and an American audience. What does it mean to have an American cast, and does that require different kinds of changes or massaging in a different way. And so I'm very excited and curious to see what happens with text itself with Mark and John and I in a room together with those actors. What is it about Terminus that's structured differently from the other plays at the Magic? Terminus has two women and one male on stage. They don't move. They are isolated Although they certainly metaphorically and theatrically speak to one another, they don't turn. It's not dialogue as you traditionally, psychologically, in a linear, aggressive structure would experience it. Yet it is a play that slowly but surely begins to weave itself so that you understand how inextricably linked these three characters are. Although in the beginning, you really believe you're listening to three different unique stories, and they begin to merge. Sounds a little Beckett-ish. You know, I think that's a compliment. In a way, yes. I think it also is a bit mythic and Greek, and it's very dark. It's very dark. And it's one of those plays we've had some people, like actors, say, you know, I'm going to pass. I don't think I even want to audition for this. And the last time that happened was when we did Linda McLean's Any Given Day, where people said, this is a little dark. I don't know if I'm comfortable with it. So I don't know if that's a good sign <laughs> or a bad sign, but take it as you will. I mean, I never got ahead of this story ever. It really is in its structure an incredible work of art. Loretta Greco, one thing I've noticed happening more and more, and I've seen it in past few productions at The Magic, I've seen it at ACT, one act, no more intermissions. What's going on? It is just simply a trend right now. Writers are thinking that way. 80% of everything that I'm reading is a, a 70 to 100 minute play that's intermissionless. I don't know if that is because 
writers are hoping like they are when they write two-handers, that they're more easily produced. In regionals, one of the big litmus tests is how much can we sell during intermission and can we put two intermissions in? And, you know, that line in my budget has disappeared because I can't sell anything in the middle of these things. You know, getting back to the question about why so many family plays now, my guess is that during the Bush administration, people were thinking politics because the Bush administration was so god-awful. Now it's kind of maybe we shouldn't be ignoring, say, you know, drone attacks, right, you know, or crazy Republicans or the national security state. But it seems at least that maybe there's an adult in the White House and people are turning inward. I don't know. You know, it's so interesting. For a few years, there was a bevy of response to the war. In a lot of different ways, a lot of different structures and a lot of, you know, some of them dead on, very naturalistic, uh, spot on exploring what that meant. And then others a, a little bit more um, in, in a slightly more abstract way. And then these stories started pouring forth. And it's interesting because some of them are very small and slices of life. And, you know, I think 4,000 Miles is one of those slice of, you know, one particular story. You know, for me, I feel like we're all a piece of a family, whether we like it or not. And I also love politics that are really personal. You know, the politics of family are really interesting. I picked this season. I mean, it just, it happened that the shortlist just kept getting plays added and we just kept talking with the reading group. Isn't this funny? It's another family drama. Even though it's completely different from the one before it, it's still at its core looking at family. And I have a couple that I'm thinking about doing next year as well because they're just so darn good. But I think it's also about the personal is that the family is an envelope for writers that is knowable and allows them to explore their own personal politics in a way that maybe um, a more conjured theatrical canvas might not. Loretta Greco, how close are you to finalizing the next season? Not at all. Really? I've got two and a half plays. How about that? Two and a half of the five. You know, it's tricky because of that dialogue that you want to have. And it's tricky because at some point I am going to have to say, oi, enough of the family drama. And, we have, you know, and um, I did. I just wrote one of my most beloved directors and I said, I want to know what's on your list, but I don't want you to send me another family drama because I have enough. We're going to do a legacy piece next year and I'm looking at something brand new, a world premiere from a writer that we've also supported in my five-year tenure. And then, you know, there are a bunch of things in the hopper and I'm, I'm really excited, but it's not easy finding five because, A, you want them to speak to one another. B, you want the audience to feel like it's a fresh season and a fresh new set of stories. C, you want to support some new writers and then writers that are already in the family. You know, I'm looking to be surprised and I'm looking to think about what's a play that we can produce that probably no one else may have the the adventuresome spirit to or that we need to do this so other people can see that they can. I mean, a lot of times that's a piece of the decision. So I think in, uh, probably another six weeks and we'll have the whole thing done. Uh, one final question uh, for you, Loretta Greco. Um, you directed 
Sayama, Pristina. Uh, do you direct plays for other uh, organizations, and um, do you ever plan to direct movies? I have said no to everybody for the last five years. I have found running the magic to be a, a more than a full-time job. And uh, as a piece of that, and the board has been incredibly supportive, you know, I direct two plays. And that is just, you know, I'm very monogamous to this place. So my notion is in the next couple of years, I am going to start directing at other places. And film? There are a couple of plays that I would love to work on adapting for the screen. It's not where I live. I love the theater. I've not stopped being enchanted by it all these years as a theater goer and maker, and I don't see that fading anytime soon. You've been listening to an interview with Loretta Greco, artistic director of the Magic Theater in San Francisco and director of Sayama Christina by Octavio Solis, a world premiere production at the Magic through February 24th. For more information, you can contact Magic Theater at magictheater.org. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. Join us for the third annual Ubuntu Awards Dinner on Saturday, February 16th at the Lake Merritt Hotel Terrace Room in Oakland, California. The program starts at 5.30 and honors Bay Area activists who are a voice for the African-African-American community. The program will include honorees Malonga, Emmanuel Nado, the Eritrean Youth for Change, Dr. Siri Brown, and a keynote address by Dr. Amina Mama. Music by Faley and MC Gregory Hodge. Join us on February 16th to celebrate the third annual Ubuntu Awards Dinner and the 10th anniversary of Priority Africa Network. For tickets, call 510-652-1493 or go to Brown Paper Tickets, a benefit for Priority Africa Network. <laughs>